Welcome back to He Leadeth Me, a spiritual formation podcast for focused staff, students, and friends. I'm Jessica, Focus's Manager of Spiritual Formation, and today I'm joined by John and Caitlin Bishop. John Bishop has been with Focus for nine years, including the missions team, formation team, and he currently serves as Director of Formation. He has his doctorate in Moral and Systemic Theology from Catholic University of America. John recently founded a new ministry called Forge, an organization that fights for the family. They do research, education, and discipleship. John serves as Forge's executive director. Caitlin Bishop was a missionary with Focus for three years, and now she serves Focus as an alumni spiritual director. Caitlin is the executive director of the Bishop household and is expecting their third baby in December. So thanks for joining me today, guys. It's yeah. good to be here. Thanks, Thanks Jess. For having us. Now, I have to warn listeners, this is a very family-friendly episode, so we are recording live from the Bishop's Kitchen. We're having a glass of wine, and the kids were just put down to bed. And so we don't know. We might have <laughs> little feet interrupting us. We'll see. There might be a third, a fourth, or fifth guest on this podcast. So it's we'll entirely see, possible. see how this goes. I would yeah. love that. But it's very pertinent to today's episode. I wanted to talk to you guys today about engagement. I'm doing a series on engagement and the wedding mass and marriage. And so this is the first episode. And so I want to talk to you guys just about some things that I've been seeing in focus and get your advice for the missionaries. Because I know that, of course, you were engaged before you got married, but also both of you have walked with focus missionaries and with students before. And so you know what it's like to be engaged, to give somebody advice on a very special time in their relationship, but also in their relationship with the Lord. So let's just dive in. First thing that I'm seeing in focus uh, with couples who are dating is there can be indecision with whether or not they should get engaged. So let me tell you just a little bit more about that. So what I'm seeing is a man will pursue a woman really hard at the beginning of their relationship, and she'll be kind of like, I don't know about this. He really likes me. He'll be all in. And then they're dating for like a year or maybe even two years, and all of a sudden, she is wishing that they were married yesterday, and he doesn't know if he wants to get engaged. And so he goes back and forth, and she starts to feel like, oh, he really pursued me hard when he didn't know me as well. And now he knows me and he's not pursuing me. And so she feels down and she wants more affirmation, which he doesn't want to give her because that becomes less attractive to him. And so he waffles even more about whether or not he wants to ask her to marry him. And then they do strings of endless novenas to every saint in heaven, especially the married ones. And they ask God for a sign about whether or not they should get engaged. And they say all these novenas and all of a sudden they get engaged. And that's just kind of the story. But it seems like a really painful process for both of them to have that indecision, usually on the part of the man, but not always. And then the woman feeling like she's not being pursued and he doesn't want to be engaged to me. And then he finally asks and it just isn't the build up to the best part in the movie that she thought her life was going to be. 
So right off the bat, one, I'm wondering, how do you know when you're ready to get engaged? And do you have any advice for couples who find themselves in this situation? Wow, that's a question there, <laughs> Jess. Two loaded questions, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll speak into this. We have had the the pleasure of being in the Focus community for a long time. Before either of us were in Focus, we were influenced by Focus. And now I've been with Focus for almost a decade. And we regularly comment to one another that I don't know if there is a better formation that you can receive in the church than being in focus, being a focus missionary. And I say that I spent a year in the seminary. That was fantastic. I have had the pleasure of getting a doctorate and um, living in a lot of Catholic scenes, but focus does such an incredible job. I think of intentionality in relationships of fostering the ability to, I mean, we always say it to be an authentic friend um, and to live in community. So focus stands as one of the greatest gifts of our marriage. We're very grateful for the formation that we received. Um, sometimes I just think we're our own worst enemies and, and the very formation that constitutes focus strongest suit can also be a bit of a, a catch 22, a weakness. So I'll give some thoughts. All of these thoughts should be taken in prudence in conversation with one spiritual director. I'm not going to shy away from giving some concrete advice. In all of these pieces of advice, I hope that people take them with a grain of salt. This is a guy given his two cents on things, um, on matters that should be prayerfully considered in conversation with somebody who knows you a lot better than I know you. So here's some thoughts. Um, over-spiritualization. All right. So there is value to prayer. And I love prayer. Um, as somebody who struggles with indecision, Sometimes I think that I have over-spiritualized decisions, even our own decision to get married in ways that were inappropriate. So I, I love Ignatian spirituality. It is the, the lifeblood of my interior life. But this kind of endless search for consolation and desolation in the real world can be crippling if it keeps one from decision rather, and particularly from decisions like whether or not one should get engaged that are essentially plagued with roller coasters of emotions. It's just sort of the way that the game goes. And so when we think about things that can hurt decisions, sometimes I think about when deeply prayerful people take a decision that is, is very human and approach it as if they were an angel, you know, stop thinking too much and jump in, you know, there are endless conversations about compatibility and, and things of that nature, you know, are, I think in the end, aren't as helpful as they can be. As a rule of thumb, I generally think that if you've been dating somebody for a year and you don't know, then it's time to make a call. That is, it's, it's time to either commit and get engaged or it's time to break up. Now, again, take everything that I say with a grain of salt, but it's, um, I have seen so many couples make the courageous decision to break up with one another. And those breakups have resulted in beautiful things, including sometimes we, we have friends when their breaking up was the very thing that allowed them to get the healing that they needed to get back together and get married. I really do worry that when you go much past that year mark, real damage can be done, whether you marry one another or not. 
And so treating that as a bit of a, a marker, I think is very, very helpful. Again, in conversation with your spiritual director and there, there are, everybody has their story. But as a rule of thumb, I would, I would be treating it as a, as a kind of default that you should know by that point. If you're of marrying age, if you're in high school, if you're still at, you know, in college, in classes, whatever. But if you're, if you're 23 or older, I think that's a good rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think, Jess, I really appreciated your, the progression you depicted because I think it is very common as you have observed. And I think something that was helpful for myself, I guess, is someone explaining to me that in even starting to date, a lot of men have made a decision prior to pursuing the woman about whether or not they want to date her, what they like about her, who she is in some ways, at least from what they've gotten to know and gather in their interactions. And then the beginning of dating can be when she's making those decisions and making those evaluations and observations, which allow her to further her discernment and you know, really begin it. And so I think there can be pressure in the beginning to know for the woman. And then when she feels like she knows later on, and he might be waffling back and forth, it can be confusing or discouraging. And so my advice to her would be to advocate for herself and to communicate when she feels like something needs to be communicated, as well as have confidence in what she needs and desires and expects from him, if this is going to be a relationship that continues. Um, because those are qualities that she's going to need to have in a marriage, you know, and confidence is going to be huge in that. And so I think just for women who are wrestling with this or anticipating it for the future, just knowing that you can advocate for yourself and you can speak up, even though you feel like you might not be able to, or you're scared you're going to lose him, or he's going to change his mind or give into the decision in a different way than you prefer is to really, again, advocate, have confidence and articulate, communicate to him. What is it you need from him and how and when? That's a good point, Caitlin. I never really thought about that before, that the man has already discerned that he wants to pursue the woman. But in the beginning of a relationship, she has not made that discernment. And so it's going to take her a little bit longer at those beginning stages to discern whether or not she wants his attention. And I also like what you were saying, John, about Ignatian spirituality, where It's really, really helpful. And yet people can take looking at consolation and desolation to an extreme. I've heard Father James Brent describe it as internal temperature taking, (laughs) where you're always taking your temperature. How am I feeling right now? And we have to remember that God is glorified when we make decisions because he's given us free will. And I, I think that that one year mark is a really good time to say, okay, what decision am I going to make right now? Because if you're stretching it out for two years, three years, what are you waiting for? What sign from heaven, what earthquake are you waiting for? It is a decision. Like you said, Jess, it's not to get engaged is not to be carried on a wave of consolation into a new reality. It is to decide to go forward into that new reality, to, to make an act of the will that essentially involves joy and essentially involves pain because of what you're giving up. That is always true. It's a human act of the will that involves a sacrifice, essentially. I like how you expressed that. So let's follow this couple and let's say the man has decided, I'm going to ask her to marry me. There you go. Now he's a man in focus, whether he's a student or a missionary, 
He's a man in focus. So, of course, he's going to propose on the Feast of St. Therese or on a Marian feast day. And it's either going to be in front of the Blessed Sacrament or on a mountainside. We know that this is definitely going to happen. So he proposes, she says yes, and now they've got to start their marriage prep and they've got to deal with the parish. Now, interestingly, I have lived with a lot of women who've gotten engaged and they all say the same thing. If I was not already passionately Catholic, working with the parish during my engagement would have made me want to leave the church. They said it's that bad. And I kept hearing this and hearing this and thinking, oh my goodness, parishes, get it together. But then I talked to this priest, and he said that most Catholic priests, really faithful Catholic priests that he knows, would rather celebrate a Catholic funeral than a Catholic wedding because the couple is so difficult to work with. And I asked him more about this. I was like, why is that? And he said, it's because nowadays... You're not getting married in the village parish where you grew up in and where you're going to be a member. You're making the decision about the church based on what date works for everybody in your family and which parish is available on that date. And it's not necessarily the parish you grew up in or the one that you're going to attend, but just whichever parish is available and the closest distance between the largest number of people who you are inviting. And so he says they're treating the parish like a destination wedding. And so they expect destination venue to act like a venue and to cater to their needs and have things the way that they want them. And so there's tension there. And I just never thought about it from that perspective before. And I completely understand why people are making these decisions. But at the same time, that's difficult for the parish. So do you have any advice on how to navigate that relationship with the priest and the parish? Wow. Big topic and and one that we won't encompass today. I don't think there's any getting around the fact that people are going to want to make a big deal out of their weddings. What I'm tempted to say right now is, well, just focus on the sacrament and it'll be nice and simple get married at 9 a.m. in the morning on a Tuesday and invite three or four people. But it's, <laughs> it's, there's, there, there is something to, like, I, I don't want to give the, the sort of easy answer like that that wouldn't speak into reality. You know, we had a big wedding and I like that we had a big wedding. There was something really beautiful about that. Jess, you were at our wedding. It was and lovely. We had a big Nashville bash. Caitlin's from Nashville and, and there was something really beautiful about that. And nevertheless, Simplicity is king. And I think about my grandparents. So my grandparents got married. They were married in Northern Iowa. And I think they were married for almost 50 years until my grandfather died. They got married in farm country. And I remember them telling the story of their wedding. Um, They got married at the same church actually where I proposed to Caitlin. And the wedding took place early in the morning so that more people could come and still get out to the fields to farm that day. It's how it was. The culture that surrounded it didn't involve the kind of um, distracting fanfare that accompanies so many weddings today. And so maybe in a, I hope not fruitless attempt to, to combine the two, you know, realities of, of the past and of the present. Maybe the advice I would give is this, that while it is certainly the case that you should celebrate your wedding, um, do so below your means below the means of your family or whoever's footing the bill, that will allow you 
to stay focused on the sacrament. We have all kinds of thoughts about engagement and, and kind of what holy engagement looks like. Remember that your wedding, your marriage is the cornerstone of your life, not your capstone. Okay, so a lot of weddings today, you know, they take place between a couple who's maybe been together for something like a decade. They met when they were in their mid to late 20s. They kind of dated for a while. They then moved in with one another and um, had their successful careers. And then after a year, two, three of living one another, they decide to get engaged, whatever that means. And then they get married. Their wedding, which takes place somewhere between their 32nd and 45th birthday, is kind of like a capstone of their life thus far. That's where so much of our culture's perception of weddings is formed. I used to teach uh, sacrament of matrimony at the Denver Seminary. And I remember looking up, this was, a, this is a 2016 figure, I think, but the average cost of a wedding in Manhattan was over $90,000 that year. Gracious. It's the average cost <laughs> of a, of a wedding. And the crippling effect that that kind of mentality can have on the actual good of the marriage is horrible. You know, you're going to have a big party. Most of you are going to have a big party and big parties are great. I love going to weddings. <laughs> Do so within your means um, and in such a way that allows you to stay focused on the sacrament and not on the party planning. So I hope that's not too cliche, but I'm, I'm trying not to give the trite advice, but advice that I think will actually be helpful for people. So I don't know, Caitlin, what would you have to add to that? Yeah, being understanding of the process and treating the priest or whoever it is with respect, uh, understanding where they're coming from and um, yeah, maybe just an aside. Those things could be helpful. I think focusing on the sacrament and understanding that, yes, you want people to be there and you want it to be an ideal date, preferably a Saturday, not a Friday. We got married on Friday at three o'clock and it was great. But I think, again, prioritizing the right things, like you were saying. Yeah. And maybe just trying to show the priest how your marriage is going to benefit the parish community or the larger church, but kind of trying to help him to see that you know that your marriage isn't just about you having a special day. Right. You know, I feel for so many of these priests, I, I've been involved in seminary formation for some years now, and you have to realize that the reality for most of these priests, the ordinary situation that they find themselves in when they're preparing a couple for marriage is to prepare a couple who wildly disagrees with many, if not most of the church's teachings on marriage and family and sexuality coming to them because they want a Catholic wedding. And for those who are at beautiful churches coming because they like the architecture of the building where that priest serves. Can you imagine anything more nauseating? That's where those priests are at. God bless them. They're doing the work of the church, sacred work that the church needs so much, but complex and frustrating work. And for focused missionaries who God love them and I'm the worst of them, we have our own issues, you know, kind of waltz in sort of commanding the show. Just, just watch out. Yes, communicate and make it clear that, yeah, you, you are in this for the sacrament, but realize where these good and holy priests are coming from. You know, I, I think that's, something worthwhile. And, and we, we had wonderful experiences with the priests who prepared us. And, um, and I think you can have really positive relationships there. But yeah, I certainly see where, where many of them are coming from. Now, you bring up a good point about sometimes people in focus or just young people in general can kind of walk in and act like they own the show. 
And I remember talking with one priest who was a Focus alumni, but uh, he worked with a lot of Focus alumni in his parish. And he said one of the things that drove him nuts about engaged couples, young people, is that they would often insist on getting a dispensation to make their engagement and marriage prep shorter so that they could get married earlier. And I remember hearing him say that and first thinking, come on, these people are are ready. They uh, have good theology. They've had good formation through focus. And why are we prolonging things? And yet then I would see some of these same couples in marriage, they'd be struggling because they knew all of the theology of the body. And when they first got engaged, she was thinking, oh, he reminds me of the leaping stag from Song of Songs. But then actual marriage is another reality. And they are seriously struggling. And seeing that, I was thinking, well, maybe you should do more marriage prep. And then I started to really struggle with couples saying, we need the dispensation. And so I go back and forth on it. But what do you guys think of that? I mean, like, I think the typical thing that they say in the focus community is 669. So that's six months. Uh, is it six dating, months dating, six, six months, months engagement, and, and nine months until the baby. baby? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. What do you guys think of those timelines? Yeah. Well, the 669 thing is stupid. <laughs> Caitlin, um, do you have any thoughts? John has expressed his clearly. <laughs> Go I ahead. Think, yeah. yeah. I think it's something to be cautious of. I think someone had kind of warned me of that going into even before I met John. Um, and so I had that in my mind in our dating relationship. And I think it is a case-by-case situation. We definitely did things differently and had got the dispensation <laughs> that we wanted. But I believe, I do I truly do, that it was exactly the time that we needed. I don't know that that's always the case. And I think we made the most of the time that we were given. We did a five-month engagement and had a baby 10 months later. And it was hard, you know, and it will be hard. Um, And we knew that going into it. But we had a really strong preparation for marriage through marriage prep with the priest that we worked with and a lot of the resources that we worked through and the time that we dedicated to praying through things and talking about the topics that need to be talked about, being on the same page. And knowing that it would come with crosses and and a lot of bliss and joy, John designed my ring to depict that, to remind me that our marriage would be full of the the bliss, the diamonds of of life, and also the thorns of the suffering of the cross of marriage and the sacrament. And so I think we knew that going into it, but I think it's one of those things that has to be discerned as a couple and with the priest you're working with. And truly looking at your motivation for asking for that dispensation or making that decision or having that timeline to know if you're ready for it and what will come with it if if it is that quick. Yeah. Better said than what I would have said. What would I add to that? Uh, gosh. So we did marriage prep with somebody who you've actually mentioned on this podcast, Father James Brent, who is a dear friend of of both of ours. And Father James basically led us in intentional conversations on a few critical topics to make sure that we were we were kind of facing up to the best and most difficult realities of marriage. So, like, there were conversations on children. You know, what what does raising kids look like? Uh, conversations on sex. Conversations on money. Conversations on conflict. You know, what is what does that look like? I think if there was, there was one thing, though we had this in a lot of individuals, 
I think that that mentorship leading up to the wedding day and after with the same same couple ideally is very helpful. You're always going to be surprised by marriage. There's a lot of things that you can do to kind of prepare and it'll build on the virtues that you've already developed prior to the wedding day, but you can't ultimately know what it's like until you're in the lifelong commitment and all of those psychological realities kind of settle in, you know. But Knowing that you have somebody to go with you in it is deeply helpful. How long should an engagement be? I don't know. I think it's more a function of what you do rather than how much time you spend doing it. I do think that a lot of the marriage prep stuff that you find, unfortunately, in a lot of dioceses is geared towards people who are already disobedient to the church, right? So that, that's kind of your average marriage prep situation. So what do you do with that? And a lot of the rules, I think, are kind of like a function of the fact that the majority of Catholics in the United States are in disagreement with very fundamental teachings about marriage and family and sex. And and, and so the whole culture is built around that. What do you do? You latch on to a good couple that you respect. And you have a series of good, intimate conversations about the most important things with that couple. And you stick with them after the wedding day as well. The mere fact of having somebody who knows you through and through, both the wife, the husband, the the engaged woman, the engaged young man, and the nature of their relationship with all its good and bad, that's a really foundationally helpful thing. So I, I think that's what I'd say. Caitlin, anything to add? A lot of discernment happens in dating, and that's really important. If you're not doing that, then of course, if you decide to get engaged because you're ready or feel like you know what you need to know. And then there's all these topics that you haven't discussed. A nine month to a year engagement would actually really benefit you. Um, but I think that again, that's a decision to be made with the support of friends or trusted spiritual directors or mentor couples to really evaluate where you're at when you get engaged and how much time you need, not based on seasons or preferences or color schemes, based on the time that you need to prepare to be bride and groom for the day that you choose. And that's a question that I would pose to engaged people or individuals that are dating and preparing to be engaged is when that engagement, that shift happens, what is it that the bride needs herself to be the most ready for her wedding day and for the sacrament that she will enter on that day? And for the groom, what do you need as a groom, as an individual? I think it's really easy as a couple to focus on the fun and the the things you look forward to about marriage and the lifestyle changes and babies and houses and all of that. But if you're not thinking about what you need as an individual, um, these are, these are the last months that you have as an individual until your life changes forever until one of you dies. So you will be one with that person. And so how do you be the best gift to that person? And I think that's should be kind of the, litmus test of what would make you ready and when would you be ready. That's beautiful. It seems like so much of engagement can focus on event planning. And it it really is kind of mind-blowing that most of the time it's the woman who's planning the event because she's the one who cares about the color scheme and whatever else. And the man is like, I just want to be married. But we take a normal woman and suddenly she becomes an event planner for a one to 200 person event. That's very stressful. So you can understand 
why so much of it would focus on event planning. But in the church's preparation of couples, and rightly so, it focuses on human formation. And yet engagement is a very spiritual thing because you're preparing for a sacrament. So do you have any advice to couples about how to grow in their spiritual lives during engagement? I do here want to recommend a particular book. So the, uh, oh gosh, Caitlin, can you help me out here? Homilies on Marriage and Family by St. John Chrysostom. That book. Um, and then the one from the Institute for Priestly Formation, the Deacon. Spousal Prayer. Spousal by Prayer. Oh, by Deacon, Deacon Keating. Yes. Deacon oh, Keating. he's so good. So we actually read that book. We read John Chrysostom during our engagement. And that was fantastic. Uh, we also, shortly after we got married, I think, was it Liz Chorus, mm-hmm. another individual in focus? Gave, Shout out. Yeah, there you go, Liz. Uh, gave us a, a short, very digestible book um, called Spousal Prayer by this, this guy who I've never met, Deacon Keating is his name. That book, I felt as though it just explained our hearts when we got married. You know, it was, we, I think we read it, what, in the first like three or four months after we got, got married. And that was, that was great. But what recommendations on spirituality in engagement? Here's what I would say. Knowing that we're speaking to focus folks, to missionaries, to student leaders, friends of focus, what have you, um, a fairly devout crowd of, of people who ordinarily are doing things like praying holy hours and, and whatnot. Caitlin and I were in a place when we got married where we had been praying holy hours, both of us for a solid I don't know, at least six or seven years before um, our wedding day, you know, so a good long time. And we'd had beautiful retreats and all of the wonderful experiences that come with being a devout single Catholic. And we've been privileged to have a lot of experiences like that after marriage as well. We were able to do an eight day as a couple um, after we got married. And that was, I mean, what a grace. But our spirituality looks different now. We are able to pray daily in silence. We've been able to work that out even with a bunch of little kids, but it looks different now. And I think acknowledging that reality is worthwhile because oftentimes what you see after people get married, one of two things happening, either A, people get so frustrated that they can't pray their holy hour, their examine, daily mass, daily rosary, the whole nine yards every single day without any exception. And so then they just kind of throw up their hands and they give up their interior lives. You see that. You see it in focused missionary alumni. Um, you see it in the most devout people after the wedding day that they, they just sort of like give it up. Okay. That happens. Now, on the other hand, you have people who dig their heels in inappropriately. So I have a friend, one of my closest friends, grew up living in rural California and his mother, mother of nine small children, would drive every day, uh, 30, 40 minutes each way to go to daily mass with her very small children. And it would, would basically kill the kids. It was so difficult. She would get to mass. The kids would be falling asleep. Um, nobody would really be praying and they'd hike it back. It'd be like a two and a half hour affair every day by the time it's done. And there was a wonderful priest who came up to her after mass and said, you need to stop going to mass. This is not where you are right now. That's not what you are called to do. And for her, it was such a freeing thing to be able to relinquish a spiritual practice that she stubbornly held to as a young mother 
what does it look like to prepare as a devout person to, to be married? I think it is a preparation for change. There are goods that inhere in the single devout life that do not inhere in the devout life of a young married couple with young children. It's a different thing. You're not entitled to daily mass. Um, you might not be called to daily mass. We have found in our marriage and in the marriage of, I think, anyone, you really can work out a, a period of silence every day. Um, you have to work at it. You have to be intentional about it, but you can do it. I don't know. There's my two cents. Caitlin, what would you add to that? Yeah, I think piggybacking off that, I think with all that in mind for engaged couples to really consider that and anticipate that and knowing that, prioritize prayer all the more in their engagement. Double down, pray two holy hours, pray two rosaries, give more space to time with the Lord and just you and the Lord. I know you're tempted to want to spend all your time with your fiance and all the other time <laughs> planning the wedding, but yeah, run to the Lord, go to him in the quiet, um, seek him and let him seek you and show you what it is again that your heart needs in order to be prepared for the sacrament and discuss the things of your prayer. This, this is a season where you can be more vulnerable with your fiance than you were with your boyfriend you can be more open and honest about what you're experiencing. Make that a topic of conversation more so in your dating. Pray together more as a couple. Um, pray over each other more. All these things that you want to incorporate into your marriage are not just going to happen, especially when life gets crazy. So start practicing them now in your engagement and evaluate what it is that you want your life to look like as a married couple and start, again, implementing some of those things appropriately that you seek to make habits of the future so that you can be strong as you go into the, the sacrament and the marriage. And you can form those, again, those bonds and those habits that will set you up for success. And truly evaluating. Some people can go to mass every day and it's a beautiful gift to their family and some people can't. I do agree, agree that everybody can pray every day. And one of the greatest sorrows I've seen is especially young moms stopping praying. And just with all of it, which I totally get, it's a lot of work. It's very tiring. The last thing you want to do is get up at 6 a.m. and pray. Sometimes it's exactly what you need. And that is exactly what will make the day easier. And so anticipating those reality changes, not putting pressure on yourself to, to do it every day or to, if you have a newborn and you can't figure it out, that totally makes sense. But this is a season when you are engaged to really again, buckle down and really enter into, it's just like Advent and Lent, right? These are the seasons of preparation that we do things very intentionally. Um, we fast, we pray more, we look at our life in a different way in order to prepare for the coming feast. And this is a feast that you're preparing for on your wedding day. Like what preparation does your heart need, again, as bride and as groom to be the most ready to be the, the best husband and wife that you can be. I'm so glad that you brought up this change that occurs in your spiritual life, especially after you have children in marriage, because I've seen so many married couples, but especially the woman who is caring for a newborn, 
feel guilty because their prayer lives are different than what they were when they were on campus. And for a woman who has a newborn baby, it just might not be possible to go to daily mass or to get an hour of prayer in each day. And you should always strive for an hour or a half hour of prayer, but you shouldn't feel guilty when your spiritual life changes because you're now caring for human beings that Jesus has entrusted to you. Recently, I was thinking about that phrase that uh, you give God your time, talent, and treasure. And your treasure, your greatest treasure is your ability to love. And in marriage, Jesus is testing your ability to love and he is growing your ability to love. And Part of that is learning how to love a little child who interrupts your prayer time. That's right. My spiritual director talks about having a baby like this. He says, there's a reason that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came as a baby. Because a baby comes into the very center of a house and says, I am the beginning, the end, and in fact, I am all that there is. When we had our first child, it kind of felt as though somebody had I don't know, planted a bomb <laughs> in our living room. It was the death of my idealism, including my like Catholic idealism. Maybe that's not true. I'm still a very idealistic Catholic, <laughs> so, but at least it, it took me a step further, you know, where, um, so like, you know, we had read all of the natural birthing stuff. We'd taken the courses. We were spun up. I mean, I'm a reader. I'm a PhD. We read all the things, you know. And then we, we had an incredibly difficult birth experience, despite the advice of every Catholic executive doctor person on planet earth. Like it's still our first birth was a, a 72 hour affair that involved equipment malfunction at a hospital that ended in an emergency cesarean section. And we found ourselves back in our little apartment west of Denver, just wondering what in the world had happened. And the, the days that followed from that, that were sleepless and, you know, kind of a grasps for survival were really hard. I don't think I prayed those days. I mean, I, I probably did. It was like kind of like atheists praying in foxholes, you know, like <laughs> I prayed in that sense. And I can see why people stop praying because for me, there was a temptation to despair of it all. And I think that's where a lot of people married people find themselves is how in the world am I supposed to do this? Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, you, you throw in a bunch of kids. You can never really completely set a schedule as a parent, especially with young children. There's no period of the day, no period of the night that is sacrosanct. They will wake up, <laughs> right? I'm glad that we've made it thus far in this podcast, but the routine that was part and parcel of our single lives was gone when we got married. And you throw in you know, a, a 40 to 70 hour a week job. If you're the man, you throw in the utter mind numbing chaos, you know, of the suburban life of most Catholic housewives, commutes, you know, um, lack of community in urbanized areas, so on and so forth. And you have a recipe for despair of the interior life. You can persist. You must persist. It will look different. But don't go into either extreme of digging your heels in and and insisting that you have to have the regimented interior life of your single life or alternatively that the interior life is bunk if you are married. Neither is true. 
the interior life is possible for the married person with 15 children, 13 and under, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it is indeed possible. And yeah, I think kind of the survival mode that you're describing can be so overwhelming and you just don't know how to get out of it. And you're just trying to do that. And prayer might not be a part of it, but prayer must be a part of it. I think that is where you start uh, when you when you feel so overwhelmed. And I think for myself, it was a temptation as a single person before dating to look at married couples and be like, gosh, I don't know that I want to get married because I don't want to have a mediocre marriage that doesn't pray. Making all of these assumptions and judgments of married couples that I would encounter, having zero idea what it actually looks like to be married and to make sacrifices and to really die to self, to love, to give of yourself constantly, to set aside your preferences and all that you thought life would look like to, again, lay down your life for your spouse and for your children. And there's so much holiness in marriage and so many opportunities for virtue. Like I, I had no idea what, what virtue or prayer looked like before I got married in the sense that I was just, yeah, again, <laughs> such a child in understanding of what it looked like to really give of myself and die to myself. And the Lord was merciful and kind in that season of my life, but I've learned so much about him and myself and what it looks like to be a disciple through the gift of the sacrament and the family life that we've been gifted by God's grace. So I think just that understanding that as a dating person, a single person or an engaged person that you have no idea and you will navigate it as you come to the crosses that your marriage will bear and that you will bear together. But I think do not ever lose hope or give up your desire to pray and to prioritize that because it will be your stronghold. And it's so important to have that realistic view of marriage, especially for those of us who are well-versed in theology, to have that realistic view when you go into engagement. So as we're wrapping things up today, do either of you have any closing thoughts on engagement that you'd like to share? I think one thing that I wish I had been more aware of and open to, uh, I have a friend who I think is a wedding gift. Someone gave them like money to go to counseling, marriage counseling, their first year of marriage and like really encouraged that. And we, yeah, I think just thought we were better than that. We had theology of the body. We were somewhat of a six, six, nine couple. We, We'd figure it out. John had a PhD. He's <laughs> read Theology of the Body three times. I like, literally wrote my dissertation on <laughs> Theology of the Body. I, I'm like exhibit A, you know? Yes. So we had it all. We didn't need any other help. But when you have two little kids and you just need a little bit more help navigating how to communicate simply, uh, sometimes turning to a marriage counselor can be really, really, really good. And so we are so grateful that we took that opportunity and had that season in our marriage in our lives. And I think it will forever be a gift to us. But I think it's this stigma that you have to get past uh, as a couple and as individuals that you don't need that. And I think that's something I would encourage people to be open to, even from day one, that might be something that you should look into and can always be an option that you seek out, even if it's 10 years in. We had a marvelous experience with marriage counseling. It was fantastic. And um hardly encourage that to Maybe like every couple, if you, if you've got somebody good, we did Gottman style marriage counseling. 
Oh gosh, what would I say to to couples about engagement and about marriage? I'm tempted to just say get married. <laughs> it's awesome. You know, there's um uh be not afraid. You know, so we've we've talked about some of the intricacies of marriage and and some of the difficulties of marriage and the fact that okay, sure, you can never quite understand it until you actually do it, whatever, but do it. You know, by all means, go for it, you know. Um I think I'm quoting GK Chesterton here, but my info is secondhand. If he didn't say it, it's something like the kind of thing that he would say. But apparently GK Chesterton was sitting and hearing people kind of have conversations about compatibility. Am I compatible with this woman? Is this woman compatible with me? And GK Chesterton had a great quote. He said, men and women are fundamentally incompatible. That's just how it is, you know, and, um, and so embrace that, synergize in the difference, love it, jump in, and it'll be the best thing that you ever do. So I'd like to close on a note like that. Get married. It's fantastic. I love that advice. <laughs> so listeners, marriage is ultimately about your happiness. That's why Jesus has you in this sacrament. It's to help you get to heaven. And heaven is all about our happiness with God forever. It's purifying your heart and it will help you to be happy. So don't delay your happiness. So John, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope we can do this again in the future. And thanks everyone for listening. Okay.